Amen. Thank you, choir. We are so blessed to have Richard and Carol, aren't we, at our church. We're just so grateful for their ministry and all that you do to help us engage in worship of the Holy God. Uh, and my children especially, I have a vested interest in children's choir, so thank you to all who serve uh, Nate and everybody else for accompanying and everyone who helps uh, pitch in around here for our children and worship ministries. We're just so grateful. Today we're going to start a, a new series, like I said, for the month of October. Uh, it's called The Call. It's God's invitation to flourish. I asked Andy, we were talking about what the graphic should be, and I said, I don't know, but like, maybe like God calling, like showing up on the phone, and of course he made that happen, so he's super talented. We're talking about God's invitation to flourish. God is calling us, saying, come and, and live the life that only I can give you, life to the fullest, life abundantly. So in our daily Bible readings, now in October, till the end of the year, we're in the prophets in our Old Testament readings. And I, I think the Hebrew Bible, the way that the, the Jewish scholars had set up their, the, the Hebrew Bible, the 39 books that we call the Old Testament, actually makes more sense than the way that the, the Old Testament, the, the, the Christian Holy Bible, breaks it down. The Hebrew Bible is made up of three sections, the Torah, the, the prophets, and the writings. And the, the Torah is the law, the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the, the, the law, that's the Torah. And then the prophets are called Nebaim. The Nebaim are the, the, the three major prophets, and then the book of the twelve, the minor prophets. And then the Ketuvim are all the, the books of history, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, uh, poetry, the Psalms, wisdom literature, you know, Job and, and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, all that stuff would be in the Ketuvim. So the core of the Hebrew Bible, the center of it, is the prophets. The prophets take what the Torah has given, a, a, a law that is to make a people the special people of God, to set them apart as holy through a covenant with the holy God. They, they take that law and they, they give it to the people and say, this is how you shall then live. And yes, the, the prophets uh, appear in our Bible at the end of our Old Testament because that's probably where they fit chronologically. The, the writing prophets wrote at the end of the story of Israel in our Bibles. But uh, there were certainly biblical prophets before the 15 writing prophets. The Bible tells us that Abraham was a prophet. Moses was the, the standard by which all prophets will be judged. We know that even uh, that uh, Samuel and Nathan, my namesake, were prophets during the United Kingdom time, that they gave counsel to the kings of Israel, and that Samuel was the king maker who anointed the kings of Israel. So Abraham was about 2000 BC, most scholars think, and then Moses was about 1400 BC, and then the, the United Kingdom was about 1,000 BC, give or take. But the writing prophets, the, the three majors and the 12 minors that we have in our Bible, all came within a 300-year period between 760 and 460 BC. So before we dive into Isaiah today, let's just set up what was going on during those 300 years of, of Israel's history. Well, we know that the kingdom split after Solomon, right? About 950 B.C. There was, you know, Saul and then David and then Solomon. And then the kingdom split into north and south. You had Israel, the northern kingdom, and then you had Judah, the southern kingdom. Israel had ten tribes, Manasseh, Ephraim. They all went up there 
And, and Judah had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and that's where Jerusalem and the temple were situated there in, in the southern kingdom, and Samaria was the capital city of, of Israel in the north. And the Bible tells us that all the kings of Israel were bad dudes. All of them chased after idols. They, they sought financial gain through illicit practices. They were arms dealers. They were uh, establishing cultic practices throughout the nation. And about half the kings in Judah were actually pretty good guys. They enacted reforms based on the Torah, on the law of God. And they helped restore proper worship there in the temple in Jerusalem. But generally, this was a time of great apostasy. Both kingdoms slid into this horrible depravity, this time of, of, of walking away from the promises of God and into sin and death. They both were increasingly compromising the, the good ways of God that God had revealed to them in his law with the prevailing culture around them. So God, in his mercy and in his grace, sent them the prophets, the prophets to be his mouthpiece, to relay his words to the peoples of Israel and Judah. And prophets weren't priests, right? The, the priests were the Levites. The Levites had the task of teaching God's Torah, his law, on an ongoing basis to the people of Israel. Prophets weren't like that. Prophets were regular women and men. Yes, women. We are told in 2 Chronicles that Huldah was a prophetess. So there is a biblical precedent for female prophets as well. Prophets were regular people who God raised up and called for a special purpose. They were all called to, to announce something, to, to bring words of God to a specific context for such a time as they were in. So they relayed these special messages that God had given, and, and these messages are all different, yes, but there's some commonalities, some themes that we see. Basically, all of them are calling for repentance. They're saying to God's people, stop going this way that leads to destruction and death and turn back to the Lord. Joel chapter 2 says, return to the Lord with all your heart, and he may relent. That's what repentance is. It means to stop going your own foolish way that leads to destruction and to return to God and to his ways. So today we start with the greatest prophet of all the writing prophets, Isaiah. How do we possibly cover this amazing book in three weeks? We're going to hit Jeremiah soon. We're flying through it. Randy Perkins was telling me how they studied Isaiah in, in Bible study fellowship for a whole year. That would be good. When I was in seminary, we had a semester class just on Isaiah, and even that felt like drinking from a fire hose most of the time. So uh, what we're not going to do is, is get really in-depth to it. We're going to cover three key passages, but I would encourage you, if you're not doing the Bible reading program with us, pick up a bookmark at the Welcome Centers in the lobbies. Pick up a reading plan, look, go on our website, download it, get an app that'll remind you to do it, whatever. I mean, I've, some people in our church told me that they listen to it in the car on the way to work. That's awesome. Whatever you need to do, I would encourage you to read through Jeremiah on your own and to study it on your own. I think you'll be richly blessed by the truths that you find there. Isaiah is made up of 66 glorious chapters. You know, the Bible has 66 books in the whole Bible. And they tell this unfolding story of Judah. Yes, it says, Judah, you will be judged for your sins. God is holy, and your sins are going to be held against you. But the whole story is constantly moving towards this day of redemption when a new heir to the throne of David 
would lead the people of Judah into salvation, and that that salvation would extend beyond Judah to Israel and to even the Gentiles and the furthest islands and coasts that will see the salvation of God. And Isaiah talks so much about this coming salvation through the the Messiah, through the Messiah, that Isaiah is often referred to as the fifth gospel. All the gospel writers in the New Testament quote Isaiah. Paul references the prophetic writings 37 times in his letters. Guess how many of those references are to Isaiah? Of the 37, 27 of them are to Isaiah. He's only one of 15 prophets, but he clearly is the most influential one on the New Testament writers. Every Christmas, we hear Isaiah, several texts, the whole Messiah from Handel's Messiah, most of that text comes from the book of Isaiah. Just as the choir was singing the Psalms here, I think it's hard to improve on the words of Scripture, so that's, that's an incredible song y'all sang. Every Christmas, you hear Isaiah 7 Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 9, verse 6, you all heard this. For to us a child is born. Some of you are hearing the Messiah in your head right now. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called I'm still my only singing. I'm not going to, I'm no Bill Sherman. <laughs> She'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of course, you, you've heard the famous passage from Isaiah, the end of chapter 52 and the beginning of chapter 53 about the suffering servant, that the servant of the Lord would, would not be a conquering warlord, that the, that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, would be a suffering servant. Verse 6 of chapter 3 ends with, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The text about our Lord Jesus written 700 years before the reality came to pass. And I love how uh, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Andrew Peterson, he has a Christmas album called Behold the Lamb of God where Santa is not invited. It's purely about the biblical story about the Messiah. And he has a song called So Long Moses, and I love the way he phrases this. At the end of the song, he says, Hello, prophets. The kingdom is broken now. The people of God have been scattered abroad. How long, O Lord? So speak Isaiah, prophet of Judah. Can you tell of the one, this king, who's going to come? Will he be a king on a throne, full of power, with a sword in his fist? Prophet, tell us, will there there be another king like this, like King David? Full of wisdom, full of strength, the hearts of the people are his. Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? And Isaiah said, he'll bear no beauty or glory, rejected, despised, A man of such sorrow will cover our eyes. He'll take up our sickness, carry our tears. For his people, he will be pierced. He'll be crushed for our evils. Our punishment feel. By his wounds, we will be healed. We will be healed. That's a a, a summary of Isaiah 53. Obviously, we could spend years in this amazing book and never exhaust its riches of grace and glory, but... Uh, Like I said, we're going to focus on three key texts, 
And today, I, I, I encourage you again as you leave this place to dive into Isaiah. I know you're going to be uh, blessed by the passion that Isaiah has for God's glory as we head towards the final victory of the Messiah over sin and death and suffering forever. Today we're going to read about Isaiah's call from Isaiah chapter 6. So if you're able, I invite you to stand with us as I read Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If you'll stand if you're able, out of respect for the Lord's word. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. So Isaiah begins his ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. We know this is about 740 B.C. Isaiah ministered for a long time. He wrote over a 50-year period. Uzziah was a good king. He was one of the, the, the half of the kings of Judah who was a really good king. No other king besides David had more military success than King Uzziah. It, we're told that he was only 16 when, when he was given the throne of Israel, but that he sought the Lord and he sought to fulfill the Torah in his uh, rule over Israel. And so, of course, Judah flourished. It was a time of stability. But that time is over. <laughs> now... The mighty Assyrian nation, the Assyria Empire to the north, was growing in vast power, and they had their sights set on Judah and on Israel. That's the context into which Isaiah begins his ministry. It was a very uncertain time. Maybe you can relate to how Isaiah felt in this moment. Maybe you're entering a season in your life of, of unpredictability. Maybe something that has always given you stability is, is no longer there. Maybe you, you've had a, a great run. Maybe you've had a season of stability, but now you're facing something new. I would encourage you during a time like that to lift up your eyes to the king who is still on his throne, the king who will never die, the king who is still holy, 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 who is high and lifted up over all creation even now, ask God to, to pull back the curtain like he did for Isaiah, to, to give you a glimpse of the reality of, of who God is, to, to catch a glimpse behind the scenes of what God's really up to in his heavenly rule. 
Isaiah sees things as they really are in this moment. He sees the reality of what's happening behind the scenes in heaven. He, he sees just a sliver of the glory of God. He sees the, the flowing edges of the, the kingly robes that are filling the temple, which is showing us where the, the sovereign God of the universe is condescending, touching the earth to us. He sees the angels around God's throne eternally pouring out their praise, calling antiphonally one to another, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. The whole earth is filled with His glory. This eternal antiphonal praise that is happening around the throne at this very moment. They, even these heavenly beings humble themselves before the glory of God. They cover themselves with their wings. And the glory of God, the, the Hebrew word is kavod. It means weight. There's a, a great weight to the glory of God. It's almost like it, it's oppressive. Isaiah can feel it pushing on him like a great weight. The glory of God is what is outwardly manifested. It's what's outwardly shown by God. But, but this glory comes from his inner holiness. Holy, 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 cries the seraphim. You know, in Hebrew, the way that you make a superlative is by repeating a word. When the, the writers of the Torah talk about the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, and they, they, they want to say that there's pure gold on top of it, they, there's no word for pure gold. They, they say gold, gold, like really gold. <laughs> In Genesis 14, when they're describing an area full of tar pits, I love this one, instead of saying and there's, there's lots of tar pits, it says there's pits, pits. Lots of pits, right? That's, that's kind of how you do things in Hebrew to make a superlative. So you see what's happening here. This is the only place in the entire Hebrew Bible where, where the word's repeated three times. It's a super superlative. Holy to the extreme. And holiness in, in Hebrew is not some ethical quality. We tend to think of Christianity as like do's and don'ts and being good. That's not what's happening here. It's not saying that God is really good. It, it, holiness is the essence of who Yahweh is. His core is made up of holy, holy, holiness. He's completely other than. He's completely, 100%, totally separate from anything that could possibly seem as, as profane or as common even. He's so high and exalted and other than anything else in the whole cosmos. And he's the one who Isaiah catches a glimpse of. He is the one who, when King Uzziah dies, is still on the throne because he reigns eternally, filling the world with this outward expression of his inner holiness, which is glory, kavod, the weight of God which fills this world. It's, his glory is all around us. It's filling the world right now. And yet we miss it because we tend to focus on our own petty issues, which would pale in comparison to the kavod of God, which is filling our world, if only we could see it. The glory of God's majestic holiness strikes terror in, in those who are in rebellion to God. 
It, it strikes absolute fear in the hearts of those who are unholy. Those who are profane. They run from it. They will not welcome a glimpse of the high and exalted God. Isaiah himself, who's trying to, to do the right thing, becomes painfully aware of his inadequacy before the holy God when he catches a glimpse of the glory of God. He's aware of his own unworthiness, his own sinfulness, his own profanity before the holy God. You know, it's pretty easy to look around and, and just keep our eyes horizontal and, and compare yourself to other people and say, I'm doing pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. You know, I paid my taxes. I've, I've voted. I go to church every now and then. I give some money to the church. I'm a good person, right? Because you're comparing yourself this way. We need to compare ourselves to the glory of God. When, when Isaiah is confronted with the glory of God, he sees the reality of who God is and who he is in light of God's holiness. We are but dust that God has breathed life into. Let's get a proper perspective of who God is. Then we will see a proper perspective of who we are in light of God's holiness. It shows us how far short we fall of the standard of God's holy perfection. Isaiah sees his sin and all its, its, its obvious uh, presence in his life, and, and it immediately disqualifies him from being there, from being in the presence of God's holiness. So he cries out, woe is me. He's, he's a prophet who understands now that he's a sinner who's lost. He says, I'm lost. And he's a part of a community of sinners that are also lost. Sin is never just individual. It's always communal, right? It always has communal consequences. So he's aware of that. And he says, my community is broken. I'm broken. We are lost. Instead of prophesying the first five chapters of Isaiah, he's saying, woe to you. Woe to you, hypocrites. Woe to you who drink strong drink. Woe to you, all these different people. Now he says, woe is me. He pronounces a prophecy on himself. But there is grace. You know, this, the, the sermon last week and this week is all about God's grace and his glory, which is our tagline, by God's grace and for his glory. Amazing grace, undeserved agape gift love, unmerited favor that can never be bought or earned or credited, it's freely dispensed to us amazing grace that's flowing freely down from the throne of the high and holy God. In the midst of, of his glory, God sends an angel to atone for Isaiah's sin. The, the remedy of grace was then personally applied to Isaiah by this angel who, who brings a burning coal and touches his lips and his life will never be the same after that encounter. This grace comes through contact, though, with a live coal, a burning coal. If you ever roast marshmallows, you know that's the hottest part of the fire, the live coals. R.C. Sproul has given a, a sermon to pastors, and he said, never talk to Isaiah about cheap grace. There's something painful about free grace. The, the point was not to torment Isaiah, but to cleanse him. He cauterized the lips of his servant of his mouthpiece. 
receiving God's grace might be more painful than you could possibly imagine right now, but it's always infinitely better than following the path of sin, the slow death that we die by following the ways of this world and the prevailing culture around us. The seraph didn't just proclaim uh, that, that he was cleansed. He said that it was atoned for. His sin was not only cleansed, removed from him, but it was atoned for. How could that be? How could a, a coal atone for sin? You know, yesterday I had the, the great privilege of speaking at Congregation Micah for part of their Yom Kippur services. These are the high holy days for the, the Jewish people. It starts with Rosh Hashanah, the, the new year, and then moves to Yom Kippur, and then next week it'll end with the, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, which is this Friday night. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar year. It's the day of atonement. It's the one day a year when the high priest would dare to enter into the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt so fully and so powerfully. They tied a rope around his foot in case he died because he was overwhelmed by the glory of God which presses down upon him in the Holy of Holies. He would make a sacrifice there in the Holy of Holies as an atonement for the sin of the people from the last year. So where's the sacrifice in Isaiah 6? It's on the altar, of course. The smoke that fills the temple is from the burning of the sacrifice. The, the, the coal comes from underneath the place where blood was spilt as an atoning sacrifice for the sin of the people. I had the privilege of, of sharing the gospel with the people at Congregation Micah as we talked about our tradition's view of atonement. I told them that, that our sins have been atoned for by the perfect sacrifice, by the spotless Lamb who alone could pay the penalty for our sin that we could never have hoped to pay on our own. It has not only removed the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin, which is death, by rising to life again. That is the gospel hope that we cling to. Isaiah was lost, and now he's found. God's amazing grace has changed his life, has made him into a, a whole new kind of person who can now stand before the presence of holy God. Taking the place of his sins was the atoning sacrifice on the altar. Taking Isaiah's place. So this is not just so Isaiah could live his best life now, right? It's not so Isaiah could go out and get a new job and have a happy life. That's not what the point of this is. Isaiah doesn't even say anything in response. The angel says, your sin is atoned for. And Isaiah is just silent. He's just silent. Dumbfounded before the truth of his salvation. He doesn't say, wow, this feels great. Thanks be to God. Let's go to Applebee's and celebrate. <laughs> it's not about Isaiah. It's not about his own petty existence. Brevard Childs, this amazing Hebrew scholar, he's dead now, but he has an amazing commentary on Isaiah. He says that to focus on such individual, personal evaluations in Isaiah 6 completely misses the point of the narrative. Isaiah had no time to revel in his private emotions. He's not concerned with reimagining God. Rather, only when his sin, when seen in all its massive 
and objective reality is removed, can Isaiah hear the voice of God? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Isaiah is now able to listen to the call on his life. Have you ever had your phone on silent in a crucial time and missed a phone call? I don't know what it is. I, I, mine's on vibrate all the time. and I miss calls all the time from my wife. Is your phone on? Why can't you hear my call? I, I, I miss important phone calls all the time. Are, are you missing an important phone call this morning? I don't know if it's because we're not paying attention or because we are not in touch with what is going on around us. The truth is that God is calling us today, all of us. Can we hear him? Or is our sin keeping us from hearing the call? Have, have you received the, the free grace, the costly grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord, that atones for your sins in order for you to hear the call of God? If not, then, then you're not going to be able to, to, to hear His call and be a part of His good plan for the world and get involved in His redemptive purposes for the creation around us. You know, I, I remember playing on, on really good basketball teams when I was in, in middle school and high school. Teams that had intense practices and great coaches and made deep runs in the playoffs. Those were, those were fun, but I spent a lot of time riding the pine. <laughs> I spent a lot of time Staying hydrated, getting stretched out. I spent a lot of time cheering for my teammates. And then I played on some really bad teams, too. I played on some teams where coach didn't really care, practices were kind of lackadaisical. But those teams, I got to play. I started most of those games. I got to be a, an integral part of our defensive and offensive strategies. I got to score 10 or 15 or 20 points every game. No one batted an eye when I took 15 three-pointers each game because that was how we won any games that we were going to win. Those were fun to play on. It's no fun to ride the pine. It's fun to get in the game and be a part of what's happening. God calls us now to join in on the, the most fun, exciting game of, of all time, of the whole universe He's asking us to get off the sideline and into the game. He wants us to find the thrill of being a crucial part of his purposes for his team, the church, carrying out his plan to redeem the world. It's going to cost you. If you get in the game, you're going to have to give everything to him. But when you surrender all to him, he, he takes you off the bench and he puts you smack dab in the middle of the most exciting and, and beautiful and gracious game of your life. There's three keys, we'll close with this, to getting in the game. First, look up. See the Lord as he really is, high and exalted, sovereign over all creation. And then see yourself as you really are. See your sin in all its massive reality, like Brevard Child said. See the, the truth that you're hopelessly lost apart from a savior. Stop comparing yourself horizontally with those around you and start comparing yourself with the holy perfection of God and see how far short we fall. Second, reach out. Receive the free grace of God afresh, anew into your life daily. Daily. Let him purge 
your sin with the costly grace of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It may be painful to let God come in and surgically remove the places of your heart that have been so hard for many, many years. But it will be worth it. Always. It may mean giving up, hanging out with people that you know are bringing you down. It may mean changing jobs. I don't know. It may mean packing up and moving. It may mean just simply getting up earlier to to read your Bible as you engage in spiritual disciplines, maybe for the first time in earnest. Maybe it's going to mean a change in the relationships with those who are closest to you in your life as you put on the new self each day. So look up, reach out, and finally, raise your hand. Be available. Isaiah answers God's call from despair to availability. He's saying, woe is me to here am I. Now that you're cleansed by the costly grace of God, get in the game. Look for ways that God is calling you to action. Look for ways that he's wanting to use you. Maybe you have a lost or searching family member who you know you need to share the gospel with, the hope of Jesus Christ. It takes all of us, too, to carry out the ministry of this church. I loved hearing Scott Collier say at the town hall meeting a couple weeks ago, I will go. I will. He raised his hand, literally, and said, I will watch a service with a senior adult homebound member. I will do it. I loved hearing Chris Phillips one Wednesday night when we were talking about moving back to the chapel and I said, some, some younger people said they want to go to the chapel to worship. She said, if, if they want to go up there to worship, we'll go. I'm available. I, we'll do it for the sake of them. Wow. I, I love how Braden Maffitt and Shelby Smarr raised their hands when Trey said, who will go and lead a college class for us? Who, will, who shall be sinned to lead a college ministry? They raised their hands and said, here we are, send us. You know, church isn't really church until you're not only being poured into, but you're also pouring out into others. I love how Mark Landers texts me and says, what can I do for you, preacher? He encourages me. He gets the words put in my scriptures. He, he shows up early and stays late. You know, we need, we need help each Wednesday night with, with meals. We need preschool and children's volunteers like crazy. We need office help. We need youth workers. We need room in the inn volunteers, and so on. Raise your hand. Say, I'm here. I'm ready. Look up. See reality as it is, reach out, let God's grace change your life, and then raise your hand. Step out in faith and say to God, Lord, here am I, send me. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this beautiful story of Isaiah. We thank you for the example that he shows us of of looking up and seeing you as you really are, high and exalted. Seeing himself as, as lost and full of woe apart from your salvation. We thank you how he reached out and received your grace, the the painful grace of the coal that came from the atoning altar where our Lord Jesus was given in our place. And then, God, we thank you for how he raised his hand and said, here am I, send me. God, we, we pray that you would help us all to see reality as it is. Pull back the curtain, O God. For people who are in an unstable time like the year that King Uzziah died, we pray that they would be able to see reality as it truly is, that you are on your throne still. You are the king who will never die. And then, God, may we reach out and receive your grace afresh today. May we allow your grace to surgically remove the parts of our hearts that have been so callous by sin. 
And then, God, may we raise our hands and say, we're ready. Send us. We're here. We're available. Whatever it is that you are asking us to do, God, we will go. No matter what it may cost us, we want to get off the sidelines and into the game. We love you. We pray this all in your high and your holy name. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The invitations for all of us this morning. How can you answer God's call today? Have you been uh, unable to hear God's call because of sin in your life? Whatever you need to do this morning to, to hear the, the call of God and answer that call, I pray that you would not leave this room until you've done that today. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ for the first time. Maybe you've never been, uh, become a, a Christian. You've never surrendered your all to him in faith and received his grace of salvation. That free gift is extended to you today, and there's no better time than now to accept that gift. I'd love to talk with you about that during our invitation time. Maybe you are, have never been baptized. You've accepted God's grace, but you've never followed that example of baptism. I'd love to talk with you about that outward expression of that inward reality, such a powerful thing that, that happens here in these waters. Maybe you've, you've just never become a part of a church family, and you need to, to become a member today. We'd love to talk with you about that as well. Whatever your decision is, I'll be down front for those of you who want to make a decision. Let's stand now. We'll sing our, our hymn of response, Lord, here am I.